we are starting a new series on the book of Hosea this morning. I've been looking forward to this series for quite some time. If you've been a part of our church for a little while, if you know me very well at all, you probably know that my favorite thing to study and to teach about is weird Old Testament stuff. Uh, the Bible, especially the Old Testament, see, it has this horrible reputation of being really dry and boring and just a bunch of laws and so-and-so begat so-and-sos, and that's not the case. Wow. I mean, don't get me wrong, there are sections that I've read once, and that was probably enough for a little while, but there is some really interesting and sometimes really bizarre stuff in there as well. And there is no section in the Bible that has more bizarre and fun and weird stuff than the Old Testament prophets. And it seems that people don't really realize this. The prophets are full of weird guys. Certainly, as we go through Hosea, we're going to get some weird stuff. But the king of prophetic weirdos probably has to be Ezekiel. It's hard to even narrow down his weird stories to just a single story or two. He just liked to be very dramatic and doing kind of gross things to even just kind of show Israel just how desperate a state they were in. But there's other ones. Isaiah is another prophet. He was told by God to strip naked and to preach that way in the big city of Jerusalem for three years. I mean, it's not a fun story. Jeremiah is another guy. And this one is super weird. He is told by God to go buy a new loincloth, which was basically ancient underwear, right? And God says, I want you to hide this loincloth under the rocks for a few days, go down to the river and stick it under some dirty rocks and let it just sit there for a while. Let it get it out of gross and nasty and rotting. And then I want you to go find it, dig it up, put it on and wear that around town to preach, to wear just that around town to preach, to show Israel just how filthy they are in God's eyes. You see, the Old Testament prophets are just kind of insane in some parts. It's no wonder that the ancient Jews, when they were teaching their children the scriptures, they sometimes required their students of the word to be at least 30 years of age before they could start studying the prophets. It just was not meant for younger kids. And while we won't get very far into the details of his story today, Hosea is pretty weird too. In fact, there are parts of Hosea's story that is downright offensive. It's confusing, it's strange, and it's not a book to be read in polite company. Luckily for me, as I look around, I don't see polite company here. I have you guys. And so naturally, we're going to spend uh, three or four weeks in this book really digging into Hosea's story. But I think a fair first question might be, okay, so there are some Old Testament stories that are weird and interesting and fun, but are they really worth slowing down and spending time on like this? I mean, aren't we Jesus people? Isn't the New Testament way more relevant to us than the Old Testament is? Do we even really need it at all? The Gideons don't even put the New Testament, I'm sorry, the Old Testament in those tiny little Bibles they give to everybody with the font that's too small to read, you know those ones? It's just the New Testament and the Psalms. The church has struggled with what to do with the Old Testament for about as long as there has been a church. 
In fact, there was an early church teacher who actually wrote the following about the Old Testament God that we meet way back in Genesis. And you'll be able to tell from this quote pretty quickly that he was not welcome in the early church. But this is what he wrote. This God, meaning the God of the Old Testament, is the author of evil. There must be another God after the analogy of the good tree producing its good fruit. In Christ is found a different disposition, one of a simple and pure benevolence, which differs from the creator. In Christ, a new God is revealed. Now, I hope that you immediately recognize that this line of thought is incredibly problematic, as well as outside the bounds of Orthodox Christianity. Luckily, the church recognized that very early on. Those were the words of a man named Marcion of Sinope. He was an early leader of the early church, at least he was until he was declared a heretic for his teaching and excommunicated. So Marcion lived from about 85 AD to 160 AD, so very close to the early church, about as early as early church gets, to be honest. And he taught that the God who is described and portrayed in the Old Testament is an evil God, not the real, true God. He even went on to teach that in the New Testament, Jesus was revealed to be the true supreme being as opposed to that other guy from the Old Testament. He wound up making his own Bible, which just consisted of the Gospel of Luke, uh, the Acts, and a lot of the letters from Paul. In fact, he may have been the first one to make one of those little tiny Gideon Bibles. But the entire Old Testament and some of the New Testament was removed from his Bible. So you can see why he was kicked out and separated from the young church around 144 AD. Now, when we hear about Marcion of Sinope and we hear about the way that he teaches about the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament, we would probably reflexively say, of course we disagree with Marcion. Of course we disagree with his idea of the Old Testament God and Jesus being two different characters who are opposed to each other. We know that that sounds like something we should say no to, right? But in reality, I'm not sure that most Christians don't kind of think about the Bible the same way as Marcion, even if we don't dare articulate God. Do we ever find ourselves feeling like the God of the Old Testament is at odds with the God of the New Testament? If we're being honest, don't we sometimes have questions about how God seems so loving and patient in the in the New Testament, and yet in the Old Testament, Yahweh can seem so angry and, and smitey sometimes. I, I think we're still tempted in the year 2020 to ask ourselves, why don't we just focus on the New Testament and just kind of leave the Old Testament by itself? Well, the reason is found in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What Paul is trying to remind us in that scripture is that all scripture, including the Old Testament, whatever was written in former days to Paul would have been the Old Testament, whatever part of scripture we look at, that it was written down to be used for our encouragement and our instruction, not just one section, but all of it. He's saying that even the old stuff written in former days is valuable for those who would follow the Lord today. No part of the Bible isn't worth the time that we could put into it. What we're going to discover in the coming weeks is that Hosea has a lot to say to us today in 2020 in Joplin, Missouri, in the midst of its weirdness, 
in the midst of how strange the Hosea story is, it still has something for us. Among other things, it will teach us that God never changes and that his love for us is far deeper than we could ever imagine. Now, we don't want to be modern day Marcians. We want to appreciate the entirety of the Bible. Why? The reason is because every page points to Jesus. Every story in the Bible tells us about Jesus. Even in the failures and the triumphs of the characters in the Old Testament before Christ arrives on the scene, we still see signs pointing us toward the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And honestly, that's the key to understanding any Old Testament passage. Even in the pre-Jesus books like Hosea, we are to look for Jesus in those passages. And so my call for you as we start this series together is to read these passages in the Old Testament with an eye that's always on the lookout for Jesus. After all, if you read the Gospels, Jesus himself valued the entirety of Scripture. Jesus himself valued the Old Testament. In fact, he taught and preached exclusively from Old Testament passages. So doesn't it make sense, church, that if it was important to Christ, if it was important for him to be able to quote it, if it was important for him to study it and to teach from it, from the Old Testament, wouldn't it be important for us as well? There's the story in the Gospels. It's after his resurrection. Jesus is walking with two seekers on the road to Emmaus. And this is a fascinating story. He's, he's walking with them and they don't recognize who he is. They are talking about him. They are talking about the Messiah. They're talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection, but they don't recognize that Christ is walking with them and talking with them. And Jesus finally says this to them in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture, the things concerning himself. There's a lot of Bible language in that passage and it is deep. But Jesus is basically straight up saying, listen guys, Moses, the prophets, all of scripture, it has to do with me. Every bit, even the part from long, long ago, it has to do with me. It's pointing to me. Everything before Christ in scripture is pointing to Christ and everything after Christ in scripture is pointing back towards him. And so our task as we study the Old Testament is gonna be to look for Christ constantly. This reminds me of a story that I heard from the famous British preacher, Charles Spurgeon. You've probably heard of him, but he ran a pretty large church in England and he had an intern. And the intern was preaching for him one day and, and he preached from the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Afterward, the intern asked Spurgeon how he did. You know, what'd you think of the sermon that I preached? And Spurgeon replied, you know, you did a good job. You did a fine job, but you made one major mistake. And the young preacher was wanting to improve and he says, please tell me what it is. Spurgeon replied, there was no Christ in your message, son. Here at New Park Street Church, we preach Christ. But the intern was kind of taken aback and kind of shocked. And he said, sir, I was preaching from Ezekiel. 
And Spurgeon replied, son, until you can find Christ in Ezekiel, you will not share my pulpit again. And he didn't. So as we work through Hosea this month, let's be attentive to the images of Jesus and the way that the Testament is pointing us to him. So we've talked about why to study the Old Testament, but why Hosea in particular for this series? The reason is I think you'll find Hosea to be in a context and to be in a situation, to be in a type of nation that feels familiar to us as Americans today. And that's really all I want us to really take from today. We'll get into the details of the story more starting next week, but today I want us to know what's going on kind of in the world of Hosea, what's going on behind the Hosea story. I wanna know why Christ, why God is stepping into Hosea's story. And it's the very first verse of Hosea that gives us enough historical context to know what's happening behind the scenes. Hosea chapter one, verse one says this, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Okay, now that's not a very particularly exciting verse, right? It's not very devotional in nature, but it pinpoints us in history so that we know what's happening in Israel and what God is wanting to address. You see, because of the, the kings and the names that are listed in that first verse, we know that Hosea's prophecy is gonna cover the period of about 800 BC to about 700 BC. So somewhere in that 100 year window, we're talking a little less than 3000 years ago. At that time, Israel has been divided into two kingdoms already, the Northern kingdom of Israel, and then there was the Southern kingdom of Judah. And Hosea was based in the Northern kingdom of Israel. We know that from kind of some of the references to wars and battles that we know of. But to borrow a phrase from Charles Dickens, when Hosea lived in Israel, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. It was the best of times because prosperity-wise, Israel was doing pretty well. They had a pretty good economic situation going on. Luxurious materialism was pretty common. They were in a great place when it came to national security. They had defensive defenses that were built up. Politically, Israel was not under anyone's thumb at the time, which is kind of rare for them, right? Especially in the prophets, there's always someone lording over Israel, but not now. It really wasn't that unlike what we enjoy today in our country. Americans in particular live pretty luxurious, pretty secure, pretty free lives compared to the rest of the world. Modern America isn't much different than Hosea's Israel was. But like I said, it was the best of times for Israel, but it was also the worst of times. It was the worst of times because the hearts of its people were empty. Its religion was shallow and kind of just in name only. They were going through the motions religiously. There was corruption that was just rampant everywhere. Let me ask you, do you know of any modern country that is free, that is secure, that is wealthy, but whose people can be empty, whose religion is oftentimes shallow, and whose national leaders are just rife with corruption? Does that strike a bell with anyone? Is anyone watching the news lately? And I want you to hear me say this. I feel like I have to say this as a disclaimer. I want you to know that I love living in America. I don't think I would pick anywhere else in the world 
for my family and I to live. But there's this notion going around today, especially in political conversations and in Facebook posts, that if you criticize something in any way, whether it's a country or whether it's the church, whether it's America, then you must hate it. And you should just shut your mouth and you should move somewhere else. And I want you to hear me say that that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. It's ridiculous. If you love something or someone, aren't you gonna be heartbroken when it doesn't reach the potential and live into the ideals that you know that it could? You see, refusing to point out and voice criticism when your nation fails, it's not a sign of hatred. It's a sign that you care about it. So for those of you who think that acknowledging America's shortcomings or our church's shortcomings is un-American or unpatriotic or unchristian, I'm just gonna tell you that you're wrong. And I'm gonna assume that you don't ever try to correct your children when they're out of line either, because I'm sure you couldn't possibly love them and discipline them and tell them what they should be doing better at the same time, at least in your head. All that is to say, I will be acknowledging some ways that we as a collective nation have fallen short and that we as a church have fallen short. And if you think that makes me an unpatriotic America hater, just know, I think you're wrong. <laughs> I point out my country's flaws just like I do my church's flaws, hopefully from a place of love and from a place that calls us to be better. So I don't think there's any question that Americans are turning their hearts away from God. Even the American church in some ways, I think is turning their hearts away from God. You know what the fastest growing religious group in America is? It's not Nazarenes, it's not Baptist or Methodist or Catholics. This group called the nuns, not the nuns like Catholic nuns, N-O-N-E-S. The folks who aren't affiliated with any kind of religion one way or another, where if you ask them, are you belonging to one of these? And it lists all the Christian groups and also has none. It's the ones that choose none. And this is the group that for the longest time was holding very steady and very low, around 5% of the country. And really in about the last 30 years or so, it's just exploded. If you look at a chart, if you look at a graph, it's kind of flat for a long, long time. And then around... 30 years ago, it just curves up sharply and it's curved up even more here recently. Now it's more like 30% describe themselves as nuns. As a church, we need to be asking ourselves why that graph is taking such a sharp turn upwards. Now, what we usually do in the church is find everyone else in the world to blame except for ourselves. Oh, it's just the world going to hell in the handbasket. It's, it's the violent video games. It's the millennials' fault. It's the Muslims' fault. It's the fill in the blank just so long as it's not us' fault, aren't? I have a suspicion that the reason that emerging generations aren't tying their souls to the church in America is not because they're just being born inherently more evil. I'm afraid that it's because they've been watching us. And after watching us, they just don't see what makes us any different than anyone else. They don't 
really see what positive impact our faith or our book is having on our lives. They can't see how it's really making us any different than anyone else. As an example of this, and this is something that has been troubling my heart as a father. And this is an example that is a symptom and not the root problem, but it's a symptom that's been burdening me lately, and so I'm going to talk about it. As an example, we have a book here. We have a Bible that is absolutely filled in both Testaments with passages after passages commanding the people of God to welcome immigrants. In fact, several passages in Leviticus, I believe is Leviticus 19, they even explicitly tell the people of God to treat any foreigners living among you exactly as if they were citizens. Exactly as if they were citizens. We see this over and over again in the Old and the New Testament. If there's one topic in the Bible that there is absolutely zero zilch, no wiggle room whatsoever, whatsoever for Christians, it's the topic of being welcoming to immigrants. And here's the part that troubles me. My kids' generation is growing up and they're hearing a church that's made up of far too many people who are more fearful and suspicious and hateful towards foreigners among us than they are welcoming and hospitable of them. And I'm afraid that one day it's gonna hit my son that we are a people who say out of one side of our mouth that we hold the Bible as our standard and we use it to govern our lives, but it's gonna hit him that we are picking and choosing which concepts we actually follow. And more times than not, we pick which concepts we follow according to what we already believed, what is convenient for us, or what fits in with our political party's platform. He's a smart kid, and he's going to notice that there are some things in both the Old and New Testaments that we will fight over and bleed to the death over and say that we should take these rules literally and at face value, and good for us, we should do that. We should be a people who stick to our guns, who have a moral code. But what he's going to notice is that there's also a bunch of stuff in there that's crystal clear instruction for the people of God. But too many people in the church find a way to make excuses around those things, like the immigration issue. Oh, well, you can't take that literally. That's from a different time. Things have changed. You have to take that in context. We will find a way to ignore the parts that don't agree with us or our favorite politicians. If you want to know why the religiously unaffiliated numbers, the nuns are exploding, let's look in the mirror and let's acknowledge that young people are watching us and far too often they're seeing a church that on one hand insists that everyone follows the Bible but that also, on the other hand, sometimes takes Jesus's own words in the Sermon on the Mount and says, yeah, but he didn't really mean the things that he said. When Jesus said to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, he didn't actually expect that of us. I mean, sure, that's exactly what he did, even as he was being led to death and crucified, but so what? That's hard. 
When Jesus said that someone sues you for your shirt in the sermon, then your coat too, that's in the Sermon on the Mount. That was a metaphor. Also in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says to never turn away anyone who asks you to give them something, he had to know that wasn't smart. That wouldn't work for me. I mean, what if I run out of stuff? <laughs> he, he couldn't have mean that. As a father, I am terrified of my kids paying attention one of these days and noticing that sometimes we only really like the scriptures that fit in with our lives as they already are. We only like the scriptures that are convenient for us or when they line up with my political party's platform, when it doesn't require change for me. Because when they notice that, why should they continue listening to a word we say? Why should they serve a church that is often so transparently shallow? I am afraid of that as a Christian father. And I know I've gotten off on a tangent here, but the point that I'm making is that as much as we like to point at Israel's flaws and their lowest points, we as American Christians can be just as shallow and just as empty and just as faithful in name only as they are, even as we go about our religious routines. I think that just like Hosea's Israel, our wealth and our security and our comfort has made us fearful of losing those things sometime and doing anything that might turn it upside down. I think that sometimes we've got too much to lose to take Jesus very seriously, just as Hosea's Israel had too much to lose to take the Torah seriously. I mean, if there's one thing we've learned recently is that we have all grown indifferent towards corruption, whether it's in our politics or in our church, so long as the corrupt one is on our team and giving us the treats that we want from time to time. We're willing to look past it. Hosea's comfortable, shallow Israel is our comfortable, shallow American church. And this is who God is speaking to through the book of Hosea. Hosea is for people like us. To people in the midst of their abundance, to people in the midst of comfortable lifestyles, to the people in the midst of empty religious professions and gestures, God speaks through a prophet named Hosea. In chapter one, verse one, we read that the things that follow in this book are the word of the Lord. And here's the important part. And here's what I want us to understand because this is our hope. This is not a word of the Lord that was meant to doom and to damn Israel, even despite their through comings and failures and flaws. No, God gives this word to Israel through Hosea so that Israel might be rescued from the fate that they are heading toward. God calls Hosea to prophesy, not to squash Israel, but to offer good news to them. The good news being that they can still come back to him, that it's not too late, that they can repair this relationship. God doesn't chastise you and he doesn't chastise me and he doesn't chastise Israel or anybody else to tell us that we're all out of chances. He chastises us. He calls us to repentance because it's not yet too late for us. The idea here in the book of Hosea, the hope here in the book of Isaiah is that despite what Israel has done and despite what they have become, they can still come back to him if they will just come back to him. And folks, we 
can still come back to him too. I know it's pretty unorthodox to only read the very first verse and the very last verse of a book in the same sermon, but Hosea ends with hope for us wayward people of God. This is Hosea chapter 14, verse 9, the very last verse of Hosea. Whoever is wise, let him understand these right. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. You see, the ways of the Lord, the word of the Lord, even the word of the Lord that we read in the Old Testament, they do not change. And as Hosea ends his book by saying, whoever is wise, whoever is wise in any period, let him hear these words. If you want to be discerning, listen to my story because his word, his whole word still applies to us today. And so as we move forward into the book of Hosea, getting into his story next week and for the next several weeks. I do want us to keep an eye out for Christ, but I also want us to be looking in the mirror and keeping an eye out for ourselves. Because I believe that we too are being critiqued in the book of Hosea. I believe that we too are being warned in the book of Hosea. But I don't think it's just to scare us. And I don't think it's just to say how pitiful and damned we are I think we are being warned in the book of Hosea so that we might come to repentance in him. Remember what Paul said in Romans, that even the written down of old are valuable to us. So let us be a people who look for Christ, who look for ourselves, who are willing to take a good long look in the mirror and to repent to God for what we've become let us not be blinded by our wealth, by our religious routines. Let us not be handcuffed by how shallow we can be religiously or with the way that we study and apply scripture. Let us look at this book with an open heart. And we're going to take hope from it. It may tear us down a little bit at times. All conviction does to a certain extent. But what the book is going to do is actually offer us the hope that we need to get right. Because what we're going to see in the book of Hosea, what we're going to see in the life of Hosea, is that God's love for us is far greater than we could ever imagine. That despite the many ways that we have failed him, he loves us and asks us to just come home just come home. So I want you to come these next few weeks and I want you to be ready to be convicted, but I want you to expect hope, love from the one who wants us to just come home. If you will, stand with me and let's close in prayer.